The meaning of some words changes over time. Like, did you know that silly used to mean pious? Well, that's a silly thing to say. By which, of course, I mean you are very devoted to make such an astute point. Oh, Garen. Sometimes words change, but other times, it's not so much the words that are changing, it's the world itself. Maybe a good example of this is if you read an old biography and they mention $100, and you'll quickly realize that $100 meant something very different to people in the distant past. Not only did their paper money probably look really different from what you might imagine, but it was worth a different amount, and it was backed by gold. The word hasn't changed, but the world has. That's a great example. We encounter these issues all the time when we read the Bible. We can read it in English and think, oh yeah, I know exactly what that's saying. But it's actually talking about something that our category doesn't quite fit. That's what we encounter with the Hebrew word goim, which in the Greek is ethnos, or in our language, nations. So when I think about important words in the Bible, honestly, nations isn't on my short list. Yeah, it's not a churchy word. But here in America, we tend to think of Christianity in individualistic terms, as a relationship between me and Jesus. What do the nations have to do with that? The nations, the goim, is actually a huge theme throughout the Bible. Yeah, in the Old Testament, goim is used over 550 times. And the New Testament term ethnos is used over 160 times. That's so crazy. I mean, we've already discussed words like justice and love, which show up a ton, but that's a whole new level. What's that total, like both Testaments combined? It's over 700 times. So it's clearly a really important theme. Yeah, so to see what the Bible is doing, let's take a look at the theme of the nations as it's developed through some really key texts starting all the way back in Genesis 1, where God tells Adam and Eve that he wants them to be fruitful and multiply. He wants people to fill the earth. Genesis paints a portrait of these people made for relationship with God, yet becoming fractured with God and with one another by sin. And these, our ancestors, coped with all these fractured relationships in terrible, broken ways. The Tower of Babel is a good example of that. People tried to build a ziggurat, a temple staircase, to re-establish the lost connection to God on their own terms. The problem, though, was that the people were doing it to make themselves great, not the Lord. They were trying to control God rather than follow Him. So God separated their languages and scattered them as different nations. Essentially, He pulled out all the stops and forced mankind to fill the earth as He'd already commanded them. It's important to note here that the splintering of human language was not itself a punishment. Languages aren't bad in themselves. Yeah, the Bible makes it clear that there will be many thousands of different languages spoken in the new creation. So the biblical story is not headed toward a monolithic place where we all speak just one language. And even without the story of Babel, as humans spread out over the earth, linguistic diversity would naturally have resulted. It wouldn't have taken the Tower of Babel. So, linguistic and cultural diversity is not a bad thing. Exactly. 
And right after this account, we're introduced to Abraham. The rest of the Old Testament focuses on just one nation, Israel. But this focus is not to the exclusion of the other nations. Instead, key passages like Genesis 12, Exodus 19, and Deuteronomy 4 show that Israel was meant to be a conduit of blessing to all nations. We often read the story of the Tower of Babel and the introduction of Abraham as unrelated, but the two stories are juxtaposed intentionally. That's right. Genesis 1-11 through shows humans trying to reestablish a connection to God, but doing so on our own terms. But over and over and over again, it doesn't work, and the story of Babel is like the climax of our failure to reestablish relationship with the Lord. But then God initiates His way of restoring relationships. He calls Abraham. And the Lord tells Abraham in Genesis 12, 2-3, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And the rest of the Old Testament is really one long story about God bringing all peoples back to himself. In Exodus 19, we read God's first words to Moses on Sinai. This, obviously, is a super important text. This is not the first time God has spoken to Moses, but it is a momentous new setting. So what is God going to say? Well, he tells Moses to remind Israel that all the earth belongs to him, and he calls Israel to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, Israel, the whole nation, was supposed to mediate God to the whole earth all of which belonged to him. They were to be a conduit of blessing to the nations, just like in Abraham's promise. We get a good picture of what this was supposed to look like in Deuteronomy 4, another key chapter in the preamble of God's covenant with Israel. The text describes God's strategic intention for Israel. God says, The nations will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near to us whenever we pray to Him? And what other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws? So you see, Israel was supposed to be a prototype, a demonstration, a billboard drawing all nations to God. The idea was that Israel would be faithful to the Lord, and in doing so, they would show that God's way leads to life and flourishing. This helps to explain why God established Israel and Canaan, of all places. God didn't choose some remote place, like a peninsula or island. On an island, Israel would not have been so tempted by rampant idolatry. But Israel had to be located centrally to fulfill their mission. Israel's mission was not simply to remain pure. It was to be a catalyst and a mediator, bringing God's blessings to all nations. Yeah, and Ezekiel 5 spells this out. God says, This is Jerusalem, which I have set in the center of the nations, with countries all around her. Israel was deliberately planted in the center of the nations. And then Isaiah foresees in chapter 66 of his prophecy that God's plan would someday succeed. 
God would draw all nations to Jerusalem and to himself. The promise to Abraham and the mission of Israel would be realized. In Acts chapter 2, the early Christians were trying to make sense of the risen Jesus, and they come to the day of Pentecost. Jews from all over the Roman Empire have come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Pentecost festival. So the crowd was Jewish, but they were from a bunch of different nations throughout the Roman Empire. And because of that, they all spoke different languages. So when the Spirit of God came on the disciples, it makes perfect sense that He would open their tongues to speak the gospel in all these different languages. That moment was a flash forward, showing where the whole story was headed. It was like a sign that went all the way back to the Tower of Babel. It was this jarring assertion. God's plan to reconcile with humans through Abraham's family was being accomplished in front of their eyes. With Babel, divergent languages alienated the nations. But now, the nations would be brought back together to form one diverse kingdom. Note that the story moves from uniformity to diversity to united diversity. Pentecost did not erase cultural or linguistic differences. Instead, those differences were no longer a barrier. The picture is one of diversity that is beautifully united under King Jesus, the King of Kings. And this is why the gift of speaking other languages was such an important sign in the book of Acts. The gift of tongues was a sign, a first fruit, of a larger harvest. It was an invitation and reminder that all nations have a place in God's story and kingdom. All are invited in, and that invitation is translated into every tongue because God cares about every group of people, every goyim, every ethne. Yeah, first we see the sign of speaking different languages with the Jews, then the Samaritans, who were related to the Jews, and then with the Gentiles, people who had no relation to the Jews. And the story culminates in the book of Revelation, where we see every tribe, tongue, and nation forming one kingdom under King Jesus. The story ends with a bunch of diverse nations, still intact, bringing their culture, languages, and goods into the city of God. And God welcomes them all in as his children. And all the bad things pass away, and he makes all things new. That is the story of the nations traced through scripture. So I guess the question that remains is, where do we fit into that picture? The last word Jesus spoke in Matthew 28, before he ascended to his throne in heaven, was this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Ever since those words, Christians have been trying to share the gospel with every nation. If this is what Jesus wants us to do, it's important for us to know exactly what he's talking about. In the 20th century, there was a lot of excitement because we reached a real milestone and Christians had a bit of a mission accomplished moment with the Great Commission. For the first time ever, there were finally Christians in every nation on earth. So job well done, right? Unfortunately, not exactly. In 1974, there was a huge Christian conference called the Lausanne Conference, and thousands of church leaders from all over the world attended. 
Christians were patting themselves on the back, thinking that God's mission for the church was basically under wraps. The gospel had reached every nation. But then a man named Ralph Winter got up on stage and introduced an idea that changed everything. He showed that the nations should not be understood through our modern lenses, how we think of nations today, but rather through the more timeless concept of people groups. Yeah, in English, our word nations refers to nation states with national boundaries and central governments and membership in the UN. We imagine a map with different shapes representing the different nations. But according to Winter, this was not what the Bible had in mind when it spoke of the nations. Instead, he argued, the nations Jesus was referring to were people groups, subcultures that shared a language and culture. The word ethne points to ethnicities, the languages and the extended families which constitute the peoples of the earth. Joshua Project builds this out more by explaining that things like region, caste, religious tradition, location, common histories and legends form people into distinct groups, distinct ethne. So take the country of Nigeria, for example. It's one nation state, our modern idea of a nation, but it holds 537 individual people groups. Some of those groups have a large Christian population, but others have no Christian presence at all. So understanding the scope of the biblical word for nations is extremely important. It has implications for what the mission of the church really is. Our job, per the Great Commission, is to make disciples of people from every walk of life, to show that Jesus is the hope and promise of true life for every type of person. In other words, we're part of that promise to Abraham, extending God's blessing to every family on earth. We are conduits of God's promise and blessing to all peoples. At the Lausanne Conference, Ralph Winter changed the church's concept of ourself and our mission. He stopped our self-congratulations and showed that almost two-thirds of the global population lived in people groups that had no access to the gospel. Two-thirds of the global population. In the last 50 years, we've seen a lot of growth, but it's still completely staggering. According to the Joshua Project, the world population is currently around 7.8 billion, and 3.3 billion people are in people groups that are considered unreached. That's 42% of the world's population that has no access to the gospel. Jesus commissioned us not just to reach every nation state, but every ethne, every beautiful, diverse bubble of life. Our call is not to strip cultures of their identity, something missionaries have often been guilty of. We're not called to form a monolith, but rather to value and celebrate diversity as God does. We are called to found a unity within diversity under our Creator, because all the earth belongs to Him. The Lord loves how diverse humanity is, and His vision from the very beginning was to bring people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language back to Himself. This vision is so captivating and beautiful, but also far from accomplished. We pray that we find our place and frame our lives around this beautiful story God is writing. We'll leave you with a quote from Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every ethne, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb.